0: Welcome to another exciting edition of Sovereign BTC, your guide to the practical side of everyday Bitcoin use. This is episode number six, The Future of Bitcoin. This week's program was mostly recorded at the first annual Texas Bitcoin Conference, which took place this week in Austin, Texas. The theme for this week's episode is The Future of Bitcoin. At the conference, I was exposed to some really exciting new ideas that I really took to heart. I knew the blockchain had uses outside of just being a public ledger for Bitcoin. In episode 3 of Sovereign BTC, The Many Uses of Bitcoin, we talked about just a few of the innovative means of utilizing the blockchain, such as smart contracts and stock exchanges. At the Texas Bitcoin Conference Hackathon, I was blown away by not only the ideas that were present, but the number of people that were working hard to bring these ideas to fruition. From decentralized transportation networks to -to peer-to-peer file storage, in this episode of Sovereign BTC, we take an in-depth look at the 2014 Texas Bitcoin Conference Hackathon. This episode also includes a conversation with Charlie Lee, founder and creator of Litecoin, We hit you with this week's Bitcoin tip of the week. We do an interview with David Johnston of BitAngels and MasterCoin on Bitcoin 2.0 and the hackathon. We also chat with Vitalik Buterin about Ethereum. And we do an interview after the conference with two of the main organizers, Paul Snow and Stephen Wilkinson of the Texas Bitcoin Association. We finished the program with an inspirational and compelling speech from none other than Andreas Antonopoulos himself on the future of Bitcoin and what it truly means to have a sovereign currency. You're not going to want to miss this inside look at one of the hottest Bitcoin conferences to date. It's only the beginning of the Bitcoin revolution, and I'm so glad you're coming along for the ride. But you better hold on tight, because it's going to get crazy. Without further ado, folks, we're going to bring you this week's Bitcoin News of the Week, powered by the Liberty Beat. Canadian police are investigating the reported theft of nearly 600,000 in Bitcoin losses. The theft was reported by Bitcoin exchange FlexCoin, which the Chicago Tribune reports has now closed down due to the loss. FlexCoin says it happened due to a hacker attack. The Edmonton, Alberta-based FlexCoin reported the hack Monday, saying in a statement posted on its website that it doesn't have the resources or assets to recover from the losses. Surpassing expectations. That's how a Wall Street Journal article describes the use of Bitcoin at Overstock.com since the retailer began accepting the virtual currency on January 9th. CEO Patrick Byrne now expects the Salt Lake City-based company to reach $10 million to $15 million in Bitcoin sales this year alone. Originally, it was projected that the Bitcoin sales would top out at $5 million. The company is keeping a stash of Bitcoin on hand now that so much has been received and may eventually use it to pay employees and vendors. Japan this week plans to outline rules for handling Bitcoin. Reuters reports that's the first sign the government will take action on the regulation of virtual currencies following the collapse of the Tokyo-based Mt. Gox Bitcoin Exchange. The Cabinet Friday is expected to decide how to handle Bitcoin under existing laws, with banks and securities firms expected to be banned from using Bitcoin. That means the digital currency will be treated like a commodity such as gold or silver. An anonymous student at London's Imperial College has been using university computers to mine Dogecoin, the growing meme-based cryptocurrency. Speaking with Coindesk, the anonymous student stated that every evening they access Imperial's computer lab and set the computers to work mining Dogecoin. Mining is the process of applying computer power to run complex algorithms that bring new Dogecoins into existence. Mining can be a very expensive process, taking many computers and costing thousands of electricity bills. In February, a student at Harvard was punished for a similar mining operation involving school computers. The Winkelvoss twins want to take a trip to outer space, and they're using Bitcoin to get there. Reuters reports that the twins on Wednesday confirmed they've used the digital currency to buy tickets for a future journey onboard billionaire Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic commercial spaceflight venture. Cameron and Tyre Winkelvoss are famed for claiming to have created Facebook, which was, as they say, stolen by Mark Zuckerberg. We're going to start this week's episode off with an interview from David Johnston of MasterCoin and BitAngels. Really was excited to meet him. He's doing a lot of great work here in Austin and all across the world, really. And he really broke down the essence of Bitcoin 2.0, next level Bitcoin action. A lot of people point out that this is kind of like internet 2.0. The internet started up. A lot of people didn't really know how to utilize it. It was slow. If you could remember the 14.4 KBPS. I still recall signing on to AOL on our family's first uh, desktop computer. Well, what's taking place now is Bitcoin is, is starting to get a foundation, starting to get some momentum under its feet. And now people are really starting to utilize the Bitcoin network for what it's truly worth. And the innovation and the next level stuff that came out of this conference and this hackathon was really inspiring. We chatted with David Johnston about MasterCoin, about BitAngels, about the hackathon, and about Bitcoin 2.0 and what people are doing to take the Bitcoin network and the Bitcoin system to the next level. Hope you enjoy it. We're with David Johnston. We're here in the hackathon room, which seems to be buzzing uh, quite a bit with lots of different groups coming up with some pretty exciting and revolutionary uh, new platforms and programs. And we're going to chat briefly about the hackathon about Bit Angels as well as MasterCoin. David, thanks for joining us today.
1: Glad to be here.
0: So uh, you played a big role in organizing this hackathon as part of the Texas Bitcoin Conference. Tell us what it's all about.
1: Uh, so really suggested to Paul that we need to engage the developer community. And I think we ought to have more hackathons at all the Bitcoin conferences so that we can really engage developers in building interesting technology. So that's a demographic that I'm really passionate about. And so we decided to become the sponsor of the hackathon. Uh, We put up a million dollars in prizes um, for people that are building decentralized applications. And uh, happy to get into that criteria, but that's really the impetus that started everything.
0: Right on. So what exactly is a hackathon? How does it work? How do people sign up? How do you choose the winner? What's the essence of a hackathon?
1: So the essence of the hackathon is let's jam together on a particular project for two days straight. Mm -hmm. So it started uh, this morning and goes all the way through the night to uh, tomorrow afternoon uh, when the teams present. So the idea is to accomplish as much as you can. You're getting to meet a lot of other teams that are involved in different technologies. We have a lot of mentors here uh, from Master Protocol, BitShares, Ethereum, Ripple, uh, MadeSafe, all of those different projects that are providing technology. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is to get Uh, developers to engage with those, uh, call them MetaCoin or Bitcoin 2.0 platforms. Um, So that's that's the big focus for this particular hackathon is decentralized applications. So we're not interested in startups, we're not interested in companies, Mm -hmm. we're interested in projects that are emulating the Bitcoin model. Mm -hmm. Meaning they've got an open source project, Uh it's not controlled by a company, it's got its own token so it can monetize that application. It's got its records stored in a decentralized blockchain, preferably on top of Bitcoin, uh, using it as a cryptographic ledger, uh, utilizing something like the master protocol. And then it also has a consensus mechanism, uh, similar to Bitcoin, uses proof of work. Uh, There's really interesting proposals for proof of stake, proof of bandwidth, proof of resource, proof of storage. Uh, And so those are really the four criteria, open source, has a token, distributed storage of the records and has a consensus mechanism that i believe really made bitcoin so successful. And my basic thesis is we can use this model for more than just payments, for more than just currency. We can do this as a model for generally building different technology stacks that are decentralized. And so that's really our our mission here is we're engaging teams to use that frame to build these projects.
0: Now, a lot of people in the general public hear about Bitcoin, and they only think it to be a currency or a medium of exchange. What do you think people that are Bitcoin enthusiasts can do to help overcome that and and to help teach people that there are this multitude of applications that are really changing the game?
1: Um, I think awareness is really increasing in the community, and ultimately the way people will engage in it is when there's a program that's relevant to them. So... Payments are interesting and really revolutionary, but it's mostly relevant to merchants and to people buying things online. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if I'm not buying a ton of things online, maybe something more relevant to me is storing files. Maybe I use Dropbox today and I pay Dropbox, let's say, $100 a year to store a terabyte of information. Well, what if I could use instead a decentralized system um, that rewarded people for adding space to the network? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I think those costs come down by an order of magnitude Mm -hmm. because you're essentially utilizing unused resources, people's spare hard drive space. And all of a sudden, you have a reason to use this type of technology. And so I think the more end-user-facing projects that use this type of model, the more people are going to engage with it as sort of a broader community. Think about the Internet. The first killer app of the Internet was email. But if you don't email all day, you know, that maybe isn't relevant to you until along comes the search engine, Mm -hmm. along comes the social media. And each of those things is relevant to a different demographic and they're different tool sets that people use. And so that's what I really try to emphasize. I think about this Bitcoin movement in the context of like the early days of the Internet. Mm -hmm. It's still early days it's still user interfaces are a little bit difficult to use Mm -hmm. and they're getting better and better and as they get better we'll be able to reach different audiences
0: right on Uh, i came across my friend mike he's working on a project that's a decentralized uh essentially ride sharing program Mm -hmm. and as soon as he told me about that it it sprung into my mind that something like that was was set up here in austin but the city government shut it down uh, i believe because they didn't want it to compete with the taxi cartel what role do you think these decentralized Bitcoin 2.0 protocols protocols will will play in disrupting the status quo where you know a city government or any monopolistic institution can come in and maintain control over a certain industry? What role do you think Bitcoin 2.0 is going to play in, in shaking that up?
1: So the way I think about this compliance and jurisdictional issue is I try to remind people that jurisdictions are not monolithic, meaning that just because it gets banned in one place doesn't mean it's banned everywhere. Mm -hmm. If you think about the early days of the Internet, different countries had different levels of embracing the Internet. Mm -hmm. Some rejected it altogether, some were neutral, and some were welcoming. And those that were welcoming got most of the benefit Mm -hmm. from the Internet revolution. That's where the companies ended up getting built. That's where the systems uh, really sprung up first. And you had a huge, you know, trillion, multi-trillion dollar boon to those economies that accepted it. Mm -hmm. Now, Bitcoin is similar to the internet where it's a decentralized protocol, and anybody can implement it in their particular jurisdiction in a way that makes sense in their particular jurisdiction. It's just a tool set, Mm -hmm. and anybody can use it. And so once you have, let's say, that decentralized transportation, um, people will be able to implement that in many different jurisdictions, um, and it definitely will change sort of the face of compliance because there's no company to shut down. Uh Are you going to block people using an open source app? Probably not, Mm -hmm. right? That's a much different uh, thing than a centralized company that's collecting fees. There are no fees, right? Or the fees are very minimal and they go to the people that operate the network, right? Um, There is no company. There are no revenues. There are no shares. It's not incorporated. This is an open source protocol uh, that has its own token and people can choose to implement it in their jurisdiction, however, it makes sense. So, what I expect is you'll see these systems emerging and people using them in different ways in different countries. Mm-hmm. Just like for exchanges, they build them differently in China than we do in the United States, then they have to do them in Europe based on compliance.
0: Right on. Yeah. Okay. What are some of the, or what, what's the one of the Bitcoin 2.0 applications that you're most excited about right now?
1: Storage. Storage. So I'd say my top three are probably storage, uh, disrupting something like Dropbox, Mm -hmm. uh, compute power, Mm -hmm. uh, rewarding people for sharing compute power, uh, disrupting something like Amazon Web Services, um, and mesh internet. So we're working with a number of groups that are uh, doing mesh internet and now issuing a token in the near future to monetize those mesh networks. So imagine you could set up a router in a busy place and share bandwidth with anybody that has that application, and they can pay you in those tokens to access that application. That becomes really interesting. That's that's sort of rebuilding the internet from the ground up by replacing the ISPs, or the guys from Tor here um, are doing an incentive for uh, Tor network, Mm -hmm. and so people would be incentivized to run Tor nodes, and so that would really bolster the scale of the Tor project. And so those are probably four or five projects that I'm really interested in right now. Cool.
0: What is MasterCoin and what role does MasterCoin play in helping the evolution of this Bitcoin 2.0 idea?
1: So MasterCoin, and for those that are not familiar, MASTER is a acronym for metadata archived by standard transaction embedding records. And that's exactly what it does. It's a standard for embedding records using standard transactions into the Bitcoin blockchain. So it's a standard by which to translate that metadata attached to a transaction and say, oh, that's not a regular Bitcoin transaction. That is a mesh token or an API token Mm -hmm. or a storage token. Um, And so it lets people issue these user currencies on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the compelling part here is you can have a token without building another blockchain. Bitcoin has an extremely secure general ledger mm-hmm. um, and because of the amount of hashing power involved in it. So it adds to the value of Bitcoin and gives Bitcoin another use case, right? Today, the use case is a store of wealth and it's a payment network. Mm-hmm. And I think the third big use case is going to be as a cryptographic ledger, especially for financial transactions. Mm. So now all of a sudden, I can store records for These tokens for stocks, for bonds, for contracts, for uh, anything you can imagine. Um, And they're cryptographically secure there um, in the blockchain.
0: Right on. One of the things that excites me, uh, we have two kiddos, and uh, the kids don't have social security numbers, and we're trying to raise free sovereign children. And the next kid we have, we'd like to register the birth in the blockchain. So yep. you know, circumventing the county clerk and the and the state records department. Uh, you I could
1: think always counteractively it. register the other ones. Sure, too. sure, yeah. yeah.
0: Go back, uh, go back and do that. All right. Uh, where can people That's learn cool. more about Mastercoin?
1: So Mastercoin.org uh, mm-hmm. has a lot of information about the general project. Um, for those that really want to dig into uh, contributing to the ecosystem, there's. Uh, MasterProtocolEducation.org, mm-hmm. and you'll find links to the development code and to tutorials and uh, places to download wallets. There's also Mastercoin.org. There's also the Mastercoin Foundation.org, mm-hmm. uh, and that's where you can learn about uh, the people involved in the foundation, uh, all of the bounties that they're offering. There are hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bounties paid out in Bitcoin and Mastercoin on a monthly basis to people contributing to the open source, Mm -hmm. to testing the uh, distributed exchange, so on and so forth. And So it's a really exciting time. There's a lot of funding for people that have the skills to really contribute to these projects. So if you want to engage, I'd recommend going to any of those sites. If you want to learn more about this model of decentralized applications, Mm -hmm. um, people can read my white paper. Uh, They can just Google decentralized applications or look it up on GitHub. And it basically lays out sort of those four criteria that I talked about. What makes a decentralized application? And I think I think that's the right frame we should think about these in. I know some people are advocating thinking of these as companies. Mm-hmm. I think that's the wrong frame. Um, these are pieces of software. Mm-hmm. We download them on our computers, we run them on a server. They literally are an application. And they're not a regular application, they're a decentralized application. But I think that's the frame we ought to think these things in not in the form of traditional companies. Sure. I don't want to reinvent the company. Yeah. I want to monetize open source software and make it sustainable. right? So that's a different frame to come at things from. But I think that distinction is really important. I think language is really important. And I think that distinction is really important um, because this is an open source project and it should be treated as such. Um, we don't want to set the... Uh, standard with regulators where they think that these are companies, mm-hmm. um, just a different kind of company, and they try to incorporate them or something silly like that. Yeah. These aren't companies, right? These are software projects. These are open source projects. And so I think that's the frame that was very helpful for Bitcoin. And I think that's the frame we ought to use for these decentralized applications.
0: Yeah, it sounds really promising in its uh, ability to to take the Bitcoin network and protocol and just take it to its fullest its fullest end and really develop it, the evolution really. Uh, before we let you go, tell me about Bit Angels.
1: So, Bid Angels, there are two entities. There's the Bid Angels Network, which started last year at the San Jose Bitcoin Conference. And we have about 400 members. We're actually the world's largest angel group now. Cool. And we only invest in Bitcoin startups. And so, if you want to come into the process, you can email sam at bitangels.co. He's uh, currently the executive director. And he helps companies go through the process of knowing when they're ready to pitch. Um, how to approach the angels, how to engage them, how to talk to them about uh, your project. And then the individual angels decide who they're going to invest in. Separate from that, we've just created the Bit Angels Fund, which is a venture fund that only invests in decentralized applications. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing something like I've described with a decentralized application, uh, the fund puts in larger amounts of money, but not into startups, into the Kickstarter, into the crowdfunding for that particular application. So when you issue tokens through a crowdfunding event, we want to participate in on an equal basis with everybody else and encourage projects that are really well-structured and have new technologies. So you can go to bidangels.co for the Angel Network, and you can go to the bidangelsfund.co for the Venture Fund. And you can reach out to me at david.bitangels.co. At so i um, really excited to talk to people about the projects they're working on.
0: Right on. Well, thanks for everything you're doing. Appreciate you chatting with us. Absolutely. Thanks. You too. After chatting with David Johnston, I was really excited to learn more from the participants in the hackathon. Now, this hackathon was big. There was $1,250,000 up for grabs, a million and a quarter, which is really exciting. And man, it's great that there's that kind of money in the Bitcoin ecosystem. I'm always excited that a lot of the people that made a good chunk of change a good chunk of coins from Bitcoin's growth, you know, from $1 all the way to $1,200 plus. I'm so excited that these people are reinvesting that money in the growth of the Bitcoin ecosystem. So there was a lot of money up for grabs, and that money was given to some really exciting projects. So after chatting with David Johnston, I went ahead and talked and interviewed some of the people that were there working at the hackathon. And man, the scene that was there, there's all sorts of sweets and sodas that I know developers love so much. Uh, there was some food catered. It was really, really nice. This uh, this venue, Circuit of the Americas, so great to be a part of it, and was really excited to, to immerse myself in this hackathon. It's the first hackathon I ever uh, was at, I ever visited, I ever explored, and I really learned a lot and took away a whole lot of inspiration. So... Here are some of the interviews with just some of the teams that participated in the 2014 Texas Bitcoin Conference Hackathon.
2: My name is Ryan X. Charles. Excellent. And you're here participating in the Texas Bitcoin Conference Hackathon. Tell us about the project you're working on. So we have a project called BitCore. So I I work at BitPay. And our project is called Bitcore. It's a uh, uh, JavaScript uh, Bitcoin implementation. So it's inherited from Bitcoin JS, uh, which is originally written by Stefan Thomas, and we've extended it and you know significantly improved it and stuff. And, uh, it's a just a general purpose library for Bitcoin. So uh, you can do anything with it. So we're doing all kinds of stuff right now. Like one of the one of the, our top priorities right now is just extending test coverage for it. Uh, So that, you know, we can rely on it as being, you know, this thorough Bitcoin library that you're not going to lose anybody's Bitcoins or something like that. And really it's a platform for developing apps, right? It's a library. So uh, one of our big apps that uses this is called Insight. It's a sort of blockchain explorer project that uses Bitcoin. Um, and it does things like maintain its own database and stuff like that. So I'm working on all that stuff right now. This is not a project that's going to be like finished tomorrow at the end of the hackathon or something, right? It's just an ongoing project. So we're trying to get people here at the hackathon interested in BitCore. And uh, for people who are doing Bitcoin and JavaScript, uh, we think BitCore is uh, you know, uh, the, the right uh, tool for their uh, for their project. So,
0: right on. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for chatting with us. Best of luck to you. Absolutely. Thank you. So, Mike, you're participating in the Hackathon, part of the Texas Bitcoin conference. Tell us about the project you're working on.
3: The project that I'm working on actually uh, came here without a project, and I joined a team. Uh, they came out at the beginning and uh, explained some ideas, and the uh, idea of the team that I joined, I actually had the very same idea, and that idea is to create a decentralized ride-sharing network uh, based, uh, built on top of uh, a blockchain uh, protocol Um the technical details were, uh, I'm not really clear on. At this point, it's really cool to just show up at a place like this and to be able to uh, find people who have uh, come out with similar ideas and just join them and say, we got 24 hours, let's try to make it happen. That's great. Uh, I know in Austin, Texas,
0: there was a program like that that operated on an app. But the city government actually shut them down, I, I believe, because it was competition with the taxi cartel. using Doing that in a decentralized, peer-to-peer fashion, would you be able to circumvent a city regulation that tried to
3: shut that down? Well, that's the entire point, culturally, of what the decentralized systems are supposed to do. Uh, it, it, you know, wh- whether it's uh, the barrier of entry to try to shut down competition, or just the uh, Ability to go out there and find people that are offering something in the open free market that uh, just a, a sort of uh, organic thing that just happens. I mean people need each other in a community uh, no matter what and this is just an example. We put it, put it into the criteria of, hey, you need to get somewhere, I'm going that way, and you know, we don't really need a central authority to make any of that happen anymore because of the technology, the decentralized stuff. Adam Brown's here participating in the
0: hackathon, and he's going to share with us about the project he's working on.
4: Hi there. I'm attempting to build uh, an OAuth provider to allow people to verify their identity with my service, so other Bitcoin services no longer have to do know your customer checks or anti-money laundering checks, and so users no longer have to trust that their information will not be stolen from one of those services that doesn't uh, take security into account. We're here with Christian, he's participating in the Texas
0: Bitcoin Conference Hackathon. Tell us about the project you're working on.
5: Um, um, my name is Christian from Berlin. Um, I'm working on the supporter app for Android. The idea is uh, of like a decentralization of uh, Flatter. Uh, for the people that don't know what Flatter is, Flatter is the idea that you collect over a month projects on the internet or artists, people you really like and you want to support. At the end of the month, um, you set a fixed budget, maybe five Bitcoin, and then the app kind of, or the system, divides it automatically. Between between all the stuff you like and distributes your kind of donations for it. So Flutter was a service that was around now for several years. It's a central service, that take a 10% cut, PayPal is also taken to about 3%, So and it's not very transparent because you cannot exactly see where your money goes in the end. So my idea is we really need to build an Android app that really takes care about your uh, donations you want to do. You just scan. Uh, you just scan Bitcoin addresses you see around for projects you like, and then the app reminds you one time in the month it's time for donations. You see how the how the how the split is, and then it kind of integrates with your local wallet, and your wallet makes kind of a multiple output transaction to support all these kind of projects. This kind of way you get a transparency. You can check the blockchain to see where your money went, and I think this is a good way to support really cool stuff on the internet development project charities on a regular to give regular support so that they can continue to build good stuff, to make good stuff, to make the world better.
0: Awesome. I've heard from a few people that say Berlin is the Bitcoin capital of the world. Tell us about the Berlin Bitcoin ecosystem. Okay.
5: Um, There are a lot of people in in Berlin, I don't know exactly why, but very interested in Bitcoin and very proactive about it. So there's even a kind of street in Berlin where you can take your Bitcoins. There's There's an ATM now where you can change your fiat money into Bitcoin and then, check out some bar or a record store or a bookstore where you then can, can, can spend your Bitcoin on. So it's kind of active there. And I don't, people get excited in Germany about it. Exactly. I don't know why.
0: <laughs> We're chatting with Taryn McKinney. He's participating in the Texas Bitcoin Conference Hackathon, and he's got a great idea for a project that he's just starting. Tell us
4: about it. Um, so the basic idea is um, most servers are very underutilized, and um, you know, there's thousands of servers. sometimes. Uh, Any one company will have racks and racks full of servers that are mostly idle, um, or even you know someone's own v- VPS they run a blog on is still mostly idle. And the concept is that you can uh, use all this excess computing power and run a service on on these servers that will then call out um, and pull down an application, run the application for someone. This could be uh, Bitcoin mining, Dogecoin mining. It could be um, you know, video transcoding, it'll do everything, and when it's done, it'll complete. Um, and in return, the person who was, you know, benefited, whoever wrote the script to be ran, um, will then be paid in Bitcoin. Um, and this would all be fairly seamless, ideally, and uh, utilize a lot more power that's already out there to where someone who has a server can make a little bit more money off of it, they can, uh, as opposed to just being in the hole on the server and someone else can take further advantage and kind of be data centerless to where they, they deploy something that any computer in the world can connect to and use. In their, um, that's basically the idea, and I haven't fleshed it out fully yet, but it's that's what I'd like to work on. Right
0: on. Sounds like a great idea. Best of luck to you bringing it to fruition. Thank you.
6: Robert David from Vancouver, Canada, and the one that we were looking at specifically was trying to devise a way by which you could incentivize people to participate in a Tor network as a node on the network, in a sense paying people to route your traffic through Tor and or paying them through the issuance of new cryptocurrency for contributing bandwidth to the Tor network. So there has been a bunch of work done in this area over the last few years, but none of it really connects directly with Bitcoin or Bitcoin-type cryptocurrencies. So that's essentially what we're trying to do here today, is figure out how do we integrate the two concepts, where you're, number one, paying Tor nodes, but then you also want to pay them in some kind of decentralized cryptocurrency. So it's, it's a big... Problem and a big challenge, but there's been a lot of work out there done on it, so it's it's getting to the point now where it seems to be feasible. That this is something that could actually be possible. Excellent. And then if you think about the growth of the Bitcoin network and the computing power specifically that's been contributed to that network, that incredible utility that kind of goes unused. What if that same incentive was given to people to provide actual usable utility to the network in the form of bandwidth, in this case? you think you could. See that dramatic, incredible rise uh, in utility provided to the network, and in this case, speed and bandwidth to the Tor network. And that's, we kind of imagine what would happen if instead of people stacking ASIC miners to the roof, you know, people were stacking, you know, computing and, and network equipment to provide the Tor bandwidth. So that's exactly kind of what we're looking for. If there's a listener who's not familiar with the Tor network, what is Tor? Uh, Tor is uh, you well, know, it stands for Tor Onion Routing, and it's a routing network that is designed to anonymize browsing of information on the internet and what you do is on this peer-to-peer network you're sending messages around the network that are kind of routed randomly so uh, a node on the network only really knows the next two nodes in the chain whereas the person initiating the request and the person that is serving the request don't actually ever know each other so it creates like an anonymous way to browse the internet.
0: Zach here is also participating in the Texas
7: Bitcoin Conference Hackathon. Tell us about what you're working on. I'm trying to make a cryptocurrency that has the board game Go inside of it. Most cryptocurrencies are verifying that you're not making money out of nothing. But uh, this cryptocurrency also has the ability to verify Go moves to see if they're legal or not. Right on. What gave you the idea to do this? I love Go (laughs) and I love Bitcoin
0: came across Vitalik Buterin. He's here at the Texas Bitcoin Conference, participated in the hackathon. Maybe you could start by just telling us about this Ethereum project. I've been hearing a lot of good stuff about it.
7: Sure. So the Ethereum project is something that I've been uh, working on for uh, the last uh, few months. I first uh, came up with the idea back in November, where I had been working in this uh, cryptocurrency space for about a month before then. I'd been working with other projects like Covered Coins, MasterCoin, and some others. And what I had realized is is that there's a lot of excitement around making something that's like Bitcoin, but more advanced. So something that's like Bitcoin, but has a whole bunch of features in it. So covered coins, for example, is lets you put your own currencies into Bitcoin. Mastercoin lets you do decentralized exchange. And there's other protocols that let you do financial derivatives, that let you do more complicated escrows, and so forth. So all these sort of self-enforcing smart contracts. So... What I had realized is that that what we were seeing is these big, big, bulky, complicated protocols that had about 30 or 50 different transaction types, all of which for doing one specific thing. Here's a transaction type for gambling. Here's a transaction type for decentralized exchange. Here's a transaction type for registering a domain and so forth. So what I realized is that there really is a much better way to do that sort of thing, which is you just have a currency with a built-in programming language. And then, if you want to have any kind of feature you want, you would just write your feature in Ethereum's programming language, and it would just work. So, for example, we in Ethereum we do Name Namecoin in five lines of code. That's uh, on the back of our current Ethereum T-shirts. We actually have that exact contract.
5: Cool. Nice.
7: Yeah. So that's a thirty million dollar currency, five lines of code, <laughs> and. Uh, imagine what else you can do. So we've uh, officially announced ourselves back at the end of January. Since then, we've been hard at work on uh, developing the actual client, uh, looking at new ideas on how to improve uh, the protocol from a technical standpoint. So the latest version of the client, this is the proof of concept version three, actually includes f- full support for contracts. So you can actually write Namecoin. You can you can write the contract for making your own currency. You can write the contract for making your uh, your own uh, decentralized organization, and you can actually watch them run. So, right. So, decentralized organization is actually another interesting topic uh, that we're talking about a lot. So, the idea here is that you would have some kind of organization. Like it could be a for-profit corporation. It could be a non-profit. The model is extremely extremely flexible, where the rules of the organization, so the rules for who or or what or what sets of people you, you need in order to authorize using certain resources? That's actually enforced on the blockchain. So, for example, you could have a company where you need three people to sign off, to sign off on making some major expense that's say more than thousand dollars. And if you want more than a hundred thousand dollars, you need you would need five people or something or something like that. So with Ethereum, you just write up your, the exact conditions that you need as a contract, and it just works. That sounds great. Uh, I uh, operate a nonprofit. I'm the executive
0: director. It's called the Center for Natural Living. And written into our bylaws, there's an expense over $2,500. I need to get the board's approval. So we'd be able to use the blockchain in order to carry that out, right?
7: Exactly. Awesome.
0: Now, what? uh, it sounds like this decentralized organization protocol has the ability to create a social contract of sorts that could potentially replace the need
7: for these coercive monopolistic states. What are your thoughts on that? Potentially, like there's uh, a lot of uh, there's actually a lot of interest from some of these sort of new n- n- groups that are trying to create new types of communities and new t- and new types of societies, like specifically in this in this sort of uh, internet based uh, blockchain based format. So there's uh, a lot of groups uh, looking to implement sort of online democracies. There's uh, also this concept of files, that that's, so that's P-H-Y-L-E-S, that's been floating around on the internet for a, a couple of decades now. So the idea of a file is this sort of globally distributed, decentralized community that also has some, some local parts to it, and so it's like a, like an internet community in the sense that sure people can talk to each other. But it's also more than just social interaction. It's also it would also provide you services. It would it would could provide things things like education. It could provide places where you could get business business contacts. So pretty much every, you could get pretty much everything that you would need from inside of a community, and these these kinds of platforms could could potentially be used for, for, for actually managing the organizations. Cool. Well, thank you for talking to us. Really appreciate the work that you're doing. Yeah, great to talk to you too.
0: On the last day of the conference, I was sure not to miss the announcement of the winners of the Hackathon. Now, each one of these groups was awarded with $250,000 in seed money to be put towards a Kickstarter. So they're going to be raising even more money to carry these ideas to their fullest fruition and really take the Bitcoin blockchain to the next level. So here are the winners. Fifth place went to Adam, who was building the blockchain-based identity verification system. Fourth place went to Ryan, who was working with BitCore. That's the merging of the JavaScript application and Bitcoin. Third place went to the team that flew in from Israel after winning a hackathon in that country. They're the ones that put together the decentralized transportation system, which really was, was, in my opinion, pretty cool. Second place went to Toragon. That's the program that was using Bitcoin to incentivize the development of TOR nodes, the furthering of the TOR network so people can really utilize their right to privacy on the Internet. And finally, first place went to Sean and his group who were utilizing the blockchain as a means of data storage. So, man, I was really inspired by hearing the buzz that was surrounding the hackathon and all these awesome, innovative ideas to utilize Bitcoin, what they call Bitcoin 2.0. And it got me thinking, I have an idea of my own, something I've been developing and something that we've actually started to carry forward. And it's called Freedom Cells, as you know from listening to Sovereign BTC. uh, There's no shame in my game when it comes to my appreciation of the philosophy of anarchism. And in the past few years, I've taken that philosophy to the next level and really tried to engage in applied anarchism, living the philosophy of anarchism. And something I'm really excited to do is explore the creation of alternative institutions. Not just explore the creation, but actually to create alternative institutions. And what more important alternative institution than creating alternatives to government itself? I think it's wrong to organize society in a series of coercive hierarchies. It always benefits the privileged few at the expense of everyone else because everyone's forced to participate whether they like it or not. So I've explored, you know, what type of systems can we come up with that can viably replace this statist paradigm? And I came up with an idea called Freedom Cells, which is essentially a decentralized peer-to-peer mutual aid society. It works a little bit like this. You link up with 8 to 12 of your closest friends or family. You commit to one another to engage in mutual defense, in mutual aid, to help one another. Should someone come under fire? Should someone fall ill? Should someone lose a job? Should someone need a place to stay? You work together and come up with some common goals. For example, we've formed a group of 8 to 12, our very first freedom cell. We're actively trying to encourage the growth of other freedom cells. We've had some goals that we're all working on together. For example, we want to at least have three months of food storage, We want to make sure every member of the Freedom Cell has a firearm and knows how to use it safely and proficiently to defend their family and their community. We want to make sure all members of the Freedom Cell are hooked up through alternative means of communication, not the internet, not cell phones, not even landlines, but stuff like shortwave or marine band or even CB radios. And finally, we want to make sure every member of the Freedom Cell has a bug-out plan to get the heck out of Dodge should crap hit the fan, and we need some place to go if the inner cities or even surrounding the cities become unsafe. So the next step is to encourage the growth of 8 to 12 groups of 8 to 12 and link up with these 80 to 120 people to commit to one another. Now, the highest level of commitment is, is to the group of 8 to 12. The next level of commitment is to the group of 80 to 120 Now, ways that this could be utilized is if someone breaks their leg or is in a bad accident and they can't afford the hospital bills, you could encourage the entire group of around 100 people to pitch in, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks. Before you know it, you have enough money to foot the hospital bill without having to rely on centralized uh, medical insurance. And then once you get your group of 80 to 120, you start trying to form 8 to 12 groups of 80 to 120 which can now be 800 to 1,200 people. And now with about 1,000 people, you could really exercise some leverage. People can begin to opt out of systems that they find morally reprehensible. We can genuinely create alternatives. In this fashion, the group of 1,000 people that are interacting peacefully and voluntarily with one another, we've actually created a voluntary society, at least within the group. People may still be subjected to external coercion and transgressions, but at least within that group of 1,000, we've demonstrated that people can live peacefully amongst one another without the need of an external coercive actor. Now, where it really gets exciting is when you get 8 to 12 groups of around 1,000 people. Now we have about 10,000 people. You could really leverage that strength in numbers to opt out of this coercive paradigm. So I got to thinking, what would this look like? How would we actually organize this? And I thought, man... Maybe there's an application utilizing the Bitcoin blockchain. Maybe you come up with a Freedom Cell coin, for example, a token that each one of the members of the groups of 8 to 12 are given. They can use these tokens not only to see how many people are in their group and to communicate with one another through the blockchain, but it can also be used as a voting system to ensure there's a consensus. So say you have a group of 100, and you want to link up with this next group of 100. You can use these tokens. You can send them to a particular address and make sure that you have a consensus. Maybe one of these organizations wants to use majority rule or 80%, 90%. That's up to each one of the groups to decide. But you can use the blockchain in order to vote. Let's say you could also put money in escrow. Say you have your group of 1,000 and one of the group members has a catastrophic accident. They can't afford the hospital care. You could say, you know, all right, well, we're going to put in $25, but only if 500 people agree to put in $25 as well. The money goes in escrow. Once 500 people send their token to a particular account, it's then paid out to that particular family. You put the address of the individual who, was, uh, who had the harm inflicted upon him. This could also be used in order to create a system of participatory democracy whereby the groups only participate in those activities uh, that they deem uh, beneficial to their lives. This way, with the, with the current system, the current democratic republic as they call it, if 5% of the population votes to raise taxes or to open up this new uh, public health and human services program or to fluoridate the water, for example, the entire 100% of the people that live within the territorial geographic monopoly are all subjected to the edicts of a small, tiny few. And this is especially perverted whenever a tiny group of people manipulate the entire process and use millions and millions and billions of dollars in order to buy off politicians. So in this way, whenever you can vote through consensus, let's say you have a group of 1,000 people and only three of the groups of around 100 say they want to participate. The rest of the 700 don't have to participate. Only the groups, the three groups of 100 could choose to fund a particular program or engage in a particular mutual aid act. That's just an idea I've been tossing around. Like I said, we already have our group of 8 to 12. We're actively working on uh, encouraging the, the formation of other groups of 8 to 12. And I think that this idea could become a reality if we can marry it with the Bitcoin blockchain. If we can use a system like MasterCoin or Ethereum in order to really take advantage of the Bitcoin blockchain and take advantage of the promise ...of a genuinely voluntary society. Uh, It's just something I've been kicking around in my head... ...and it's something that was really fortified and, and strengthened. This concept was strengthened after I was inspired by all the people doing this wonderful work... ...at the 2014 Bitcoin Conference Hackathon. Now switching gears, I was sitting down for lunch on the final day of the conference... And I came across John Barrett and Liz Shaw of Bitcoins and Gravy, which is a program on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. Excellent show, lots of good humor mixed in, excellent production quality, and they do a great job getting out there uh, with the Bitcoin community and really having some boots on the ground and getting the essence of what the Bitcoin ecosystem is all about. Well, they have a song, maybe you've heard it, on the Let's Talk Bitcoin SoundCloud feed. It's called Ode to Satoshi." And wouldn't you know, right there in the middle of the conference, they busted out with an impromptu rendition of Ode to Satoshi. And I just so happened to catch it with my digital recorder. So, for your listening pleasure, I present Ode to Satoshi, the live version by the Bitcoins and Gravy Guys.
8: It's great to be here in Austin, Texas. We're from Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, we'd like to play a little song for you all. Maybe you've heard it on YouTube. It's called Ode to Satoshi. And uh, I'm John Barrett. I'm Shaw. Uh, and together we are Bitcoins, Bitcoins and Gravy. gravy. Hit <laughs> it, Johnny. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things ought to be, he gave Everybody knows till everybody knows your name. Down the road it will be told about the death of old Mount Gox. About traders trading altered coins and miners mining blocks. And them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through San Antonio. I see they don't care to be a millionaire, they just want to be left alone. Oh, Bitcoin, as you're gone into the old blockchain, oh, Bitcoin, Everybody knows till everybody knows your name. Piggot lit From the ghettos of Calcutta to the halls of Parliament, while the bankers count our money out for every government, all oh, Bitcoin flies on through the skies of- a promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny. Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going through the old blockchain. Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain. Going to rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, everybody knows your, give you some exposure, everybody knows your name. Sing it. Oh, Lord, pass me some more.
0: What a great song.
8: Feel free to throw
0: Bitcoins into the case. Kudos to the Bitcoins and Gravy guys for whipping out their guitar and harmonica right there in the middle of a lunch break for the crowd to enjoy. And boy, did people enjoy it. Good song, good message. Gotta love Bitcoins and Gravy. Now, at this conference, which was set in a very beautiful setting, it was at the Circuit of the Americas Formula One racetrack. Awesome venue, really high-tech stuff going on. Uh, the staff was very nice and super supportive. The only problem, of course, is that the circuit of the Americas got a lot of state and city funding, which I don't I'm not one for a corporate welfare or corporatism, but nonetheless the venue was awesome and the folks that put it together were great. Now at this event, man, there were so many big thinkers and big names in the Bitcoin movement, and I had the pleasure of sitting down with Charlie Lee. He's the founder and creator of Litecoin. Well the best alternative to Bitcoin that's out there, the number one altcoin, in my opinion. And the one that really set the stage for all these future script coins. And I chatted with him about Bitcoin versus altcoin, what some of the differences are. And also what he thinks about this rift that's forming within the Bitcoin community between those who are in favor of altcoins and think the market will decide it. And those who are Bitcoin 100% and think there's no room for any other coin. And just want to mention, we're putting together a mini-conference for 512Bitcoin. It's going to be an information clearinghouse that you can call here in Central Texas for information on everything related to the Central Texas Bitcoin ecosystem. We're doing a mini-conference. It's going to be Sunday, March 9th, which is when this program is released. And there's going to be a debate between Daniel Krywitz of the Satoshi Nakamoto Institute, who is vehemently opposed to altcoins, and Jason King of Sean's Outpost, who also happens to be on the board of Litecoin. I'm going to be sure to record that with my little handy digital audio recorder, and we'll bring it to you for next week's Sovereign BTC podcast number seven. I'll also bring you some of the speeches and some of the other great stuff that takes place at that event. But again, I had the distinct pleasure and honor of chatting with Charlie Lee about Litecoin. So without further ado, here's that interview. We're joined by Charlie Lee. He is the founder and the brains behind Litecoin, which was the predominant alternative currency, uh, alternative to Bitcoin, and it's here at the Texas Bitcoin Conference. I understand you're doing a panel tomorrow?
9: Yep, I'll be talking about Litecoin at the all-currency panel.
0: Excellent. Now, there's some big news in the Litecoin world uh, out of China. Can you fill us in on
9: that? Sure. Um, just I think yesterday, or, yeah, yesterday um, BTC China started trading Litecoin. Awesome. So as many people already know, BTC China's CEO is my brother, Bobby Lee. Right on. I've been talking to him, I've been like bugging him for <laughs> close <laughs> to six months now <laughs> to get him to do Litecoin and finally I was able to convince him and his co founders that um, supporting Litecoin is good for both Litecoin and Bitcoin and his company and he got his work got his employees together to get to implement it and they launched yesterday.
0: Well congratulations, that's Thank great you. news. Yeah. Tell me, uh, for people that aren't really familiar with Litecoin, what are some of the differences between Bitcoin and Litecoin?
9: Uh, sure. So Litecoin, um, it's, it's branded as like silver to Bitcoin's gold. Mm-hmm. So when I created Litecoin, I wanted to create something that's uh, more lightweight. something. So I made it uh, faster in terms of transaction speed. So blocks were confirmed four times faster. So instead of Bitcoin's 10 minutes, for Litecoin, it's two and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. So sending coins with Litecoin just feels faster. Um, And also I made it more plentiful. So I envisioned Litecoin's value to be uh, less than Bitcoin. So it's four times more Litecoins. So there's 84 million Litecoins versus 21 million Bitcoins. Um, And in order to make it so that um, mining does not compete with Bitcoin mining, uh, Litecoin uses a different mining algorithm. It uses script, which is more memory intensive. So the goal was to make it... um, uh, more easily mined on initially CPUs and now it's mostly GPUs, Mm -hmm. whereas Bitcoin is mined on ASICs. So Litecoin ASICs will probably come out, um, but the idea is that it won't be that much more efficient than GPUs, so it should be more um, decentralized, where a lot more people can still mine Litecoin.
0: There won't be as much of a barrier to entry as there is with Bitcoin Yeah, and
9: Bitcoin, um, it's getting to the point where unless you're a big-time miner, it's you can't profitably mine bitcoin so it it pushes out a lot of the small time mining so now bitcoin mining is it's kind of centralized into a few parties sure sure uh, Or it will be more and more so so people are people generally think that's a bad thing because for decentralized currency controlled by a few where yep. mining is controlled by a few is dangerous sure so hopefully litecoin can stay away from that and still be more decentralized
0: okay how long did it take you to develop the litecoin protocol
9: um, so, I mean, Litecoin is very similar to Bitcoin. So, it didn't take me that long. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of just pure coding, it was only like a few hours of work. I, I, I was able to do most of it in like a day. Wow. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of things I put a lot of work I put into um, launching a very fair. So, didn't want to do any pre-mines. I want to make sure people had the client before the launch so people can test it out. Mm-hmm. So, at launch everyone can jump in and mine at the same time uh-huh. it's all like all very fair so um, that helped obviously make Litecoin really popular because there was no I didn't like mine a million Litecoins and keep for myself so everybody had a fair chance so a lot of work put into that I put a lot of work into um, uh, fixing up the fees so there's um, there's to prevent like um, dust spam attacks on the Litecoin network because the fees initially were too low mm-hmm. um, so there's that differs from Bitcoin a bit, so yeah.
0: Right on. How does it feel now that uh, there's a lot of local merchants and stuff that are accepting Litecoin? How's that feel as the creator?
9: Um, it's it feels great. It's just, it's something that I never imagined. Like oh. when I created Litecoin, it was mostly for fun. Mm-hmm. Like there were a few other cryptocurrencies out there previously, and I felt like they just they didn't really much and um, they were all created by people who wanted to make money who wanted to pre mine a lot and try to just make a quick buck so I thought I could do better and I just did it so it wasn't like I didn't plan on it to become like the most popular alternative to Bitcoin and the way I did it somehow well made it uh, really popular right on. Um, yeah. and it, it is and I guess the rest is history.
0: Cool. Uh, the last episode of this podcast I did, we featured a impromptu debate that came about in a panel between Jeffrey Tucker and Daniel Krywitz. And it was about the altcoins versus bitcoins. There seems to be a rift that's formed in the bitcoin community and the cryptocurrency community mm-hmm. where I, I consider it kind of elitist to think that we can only have bitcoin and we should only have bitcoin. What do you say to those that think altcoins take away from bitcoin or that think there's only room for one cryptocurrency in the market?
9: Um... I think it's a little bit elitist to think that there's there can be only one. Um, It's like, think of it like, it's true that there's a there's a network effect with Bitcoin where if you have Bitcoin and someone else is accepting it, why would you use something else when it's so similar, right? So yeah, so I think there's always going to be an an alternative currency, Um, whether it's Litecoin or something else. People people like choices. You can't really you can't really prevent uh, another alternative currency from coming out. Uh, from being supported and from being successful i mean if you it, ideally in the ideal world if you're only if you really supportive of bitcoin you w- you don't want any other currencies to kind of um, distract bitcoin right it's it's confusing enough to explain bitcoin to someone new adding like a thousand other alternative currency just muddies the picture a bit and i agree i agree with that um, so i think but the market will decide right the more the popular ones the good ones will kind of bubble to the top mm-hmm. and the ones that are scammy or created with any developer support will, ca- will kind of get left behind mm-hmm. and you see that on like the if you like a coin marketplace you have like certain coins that come out initially really strong like a lot of marketing behind it but it really didn't have much substance mm-hmm. and after a while it kind of just falls back and gets gets back into the mix.
0: Well, thanks for chatting with me and thanks for everything you do with Litecoin. Sure. I think it's a great currency and a wonderful alternative to Bitcoin. I want to take a second to thank some of the sponsors that make this show possible. I want to thank Central Texas Gunworks. You can check them out at centraltexasgunworks.com. It's the Austin, Texas-based firearms, self-defense training, and CHL course outfit. They are the first firearm store in the state of Texas to accept Bitcoin, which is really exciting. You can also purchase firearms online with Bitcoin at centraltexasgunworks.com. Big thanks to Michael Cargill. They're also one of the first places in the entire country, the entire U.S., to have a Bitcoin ATM. So Michael Cargill, the owner of that company, is really excited about Bitcoin. He's a wonderful proponent, always getting local media interviews. So I'm really excited to have him on board the Bitcoin ecosystem. Again, you can check out centraltexasgunworks.com to learn more about the great work that they're doing. I also want to thank a new sponsor of the program. It's Bitmain. the guys that bring you the Antminer S1. They were present at the Texas Bitcoin Conference, and I picked up an Antminer. It's got about 180 giga hash uh, worth of hashing power, so that's really exciting. My good friend Harlan Dietrich of Brave New Books, the first brick and mortar in the entire state of Texas to accept Bitcoin, he picked one up as well, so we're going to combine our two Antminers. We're going to have a combined power of 360 giga hash. Probably won't make too much money off of it, but we are Bitcoin enthusiasts We love Bitcoin and we're excited to take part in decentralizing the mining network just that much more. So your Bitcoin transaction may be verified in part by the Bitcoin miners that are going to be set up at Brave New Books. So I want to thank Bitmain and their wonderful product. These uh, miners are extremely affordable. You still have an opportunity to get in on the mining game, to decentralize it even further. If you're lucky, make a little bit of money. Apparently they have a new product, the AntMiner S2, coming out. So we'll keep you up to date on the news from Bitmain. They have a wonderful reputation uh, for what they do and the equipment that they provide. It was great to meet Yoshi, who is the creator of the Bitmain miners. And I want to thank them for their support of this program and thank them for their support of the Bitcoin ecosystem. So without further ado, folks, we're going to go ahead and hit you with this week's Bitcoin Tip of the Week, sponsored by Blockchain.info. This is a good one. It's all about where you can use your Bitcoins. A lot of people have the Bitcoins. They hold them. I recommend holding them if you want to make a little money off of them. The price of Bitcoin is definitely going to go up. But if you really want to help grow the Bitcoin ecosystem, the best thing you could do, in my opinion, is spend some of those Bitcoins. Get them out there in circulation. Help empower the wonderful merchants that have decided to take that leap of faith, to be the first ones to revolutionize the industry and accept Bitcoin. So this Bitcoin Tip of the Week is all about where you can spend your Bitcoins. You've got Bitcoins, but where can you spend them? Bitcoin's appeal is really taking off and businesses are starting to take notice. Here are a few great places to spend your Bitcoins. Gift, that's G-Y-F-T, is a website and app that allows you to purchase gift cards from many awesome retailers like Target, Amazon.com, Whole Foods, and CVS. Other retailers accept Bitcoin directly. You can buy a new laptop on BitcoinStore.com, set up a new blog on WordPress.com, buy a myriad of goodies from Shopify merchants, and the list goes on and on. If you have a favorite business, give them the 411 about Bitcoin. This week's Bitcoin tip of the week was brought to you by blockchain.info, the world's most popular Bitcoin wallet. Simple and secure, blockchain is the easiest way to get started using Bitcoin. To learn more or to create a wallet today, visit blockchain.info. Man, this has been a jam-packed edition of Sovereign BTC. It's our sixth episode. I want to thank the guys at Let's Talk Bitcoin for putting us on their podcast feed. Really appreciate the work they're doing and their consistency and the integrity of everyone at that network. So big shout out to Let's Talk Bitcoin. Check out Let's Talk Bitcoin.com to hear more excellent programming uh, such as this show, Bitcoins and Gravy, the Ed and Ethan's Live Bitcoin Report, Sex and Science Hour, and of course the flagship, Let's Talk Bitcoin. What a wonderful show. Shout out to Adam Levine uh, for the great work that he is doing now, folks, we're going to bring you our featured. It's not a featured interview, actually. Usually, we have a featured interview. This is actually our featured speech. I managed to record quite a few speeches at this event. They're going to be present on the Sovereign BTC podcast feed. You can find it at sovereignbtc.com. I recorded Dr. Robert Murphy, who gave a chat on Austrian economics as it applies to Bitcoin. I got to record the wonderful Jeffrey Tucker the best-dressed man in the Bitcoin ecosystem. I also recorded a panel on women in Bitcoin, and I recorded this interview we're about to bring you by none other than Andreas Antonopoulos, programmer, developer, evangelist, security expert, works with blockchain.info now, and this is a powerful figure in the Bitcoin movement. I'm so grateful that he's a part of the Bitcoin ecosystem, and the stuff that this guy says just really innovative. He's leading the way, and he communicates it in such a powerful fashion. He genuinely believes in Bitcoin and believes in the potential of Bitcoin. And, man, I was really excited to get to hear this speech that he gave, and I'm really excited to bring it to you guys. There's something he says towards the end. I'm not going to spoil it. I'll go ahead and highlight it after this interview, but pay attention to the end because he really drives it home. The speech is all about cryptocurrencies and the role they're playing in disrupting the status quo and bringing sovereignty to the people's money. Really powerful speech. It was titled, just the same as the title of this podcast, this week's edition of Sovereign BTC, The Future of Bitcoin.
10: I'm Andreas Antonopoulos. I'm a Bitcoin developer, commentator, and I guess an evangelist. And I just love Bitcoin. I'm just uh, really enjoying being in this space. Uh, I feel like I'm doing some of the most important uh, work in my life right now. And it's great to be among this community. So the topic I wanted to talk about today is the future of cryptocurrencies. And we're at the moment at the birth time of this incredible phenomenon that affects so many things in the world around us. And we don't really know where this is going. None of us knows where this is going. In fact, it's rather amusing to be having discussions with economists who claim to know exactly where this is going even though they've never seen a cryptocurrency before because we've never had a cryptocurrency before that say things with absolute certainty like bitcoin's going to zero even though no currency in the history of mankind has ever gone to zero you can still buy roman sesterce and it has tourist value <laughs> which brings up an interesting concept what is value and how does value change in an environment where currency is abundant. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about scarcity, abundance, and the source of value. I used to think that alt-currencies were going to happen in their dozens, and then they started happening in their hundreds. And I used to think that alt currencies somehow threatened Bitcoin a bit, because part of Bitcoin's magic is the ability to create digital scarcity, to create something digital that is rare. How can it be rare if you can have lots of them? That kind of confused me. I wanted to think about that a bit. I gradually realized that um, scarcity is what gives the individual currency rarity, but it doesn't have to apply across the entire field of currencies. And so then I started thinking about what is monetary value and how it's derived. Because at some point I realized we're not going to have hundreds of altcoins. We're not going to have thousands of altcoins. We're going to have tens of thousands of altcoins and then hundreds of thousands of altcoins and eventually millions of altcoins. At some point I came across a website where you can uh, choose a name for a new currency. Uh, using a drop-down, you can select the proof-of-work algorithm you want. Uh, you can set monetary policy and be Ben Bernanke for a day.
8: <laughs>
10: and then you can press submit and launch a new cryptocurrency. And it costs a tenth of a bitcoin to do that, but if it costs a tenth of a bitcoin today, there's going to be a site that does this for free by the end of the year. And then suddenly I realized that what this means is that before the end of 2014 a 5-year-old in a primary school will launch Joey Coin to compete against Maria Coin launched by his friend frenemy, friend of me friend Things change very fast in primary school But here's the thing if you put young hominids together In a social environment, they invent currencies. They do this all the time, even before cryptocurrencies. If you see a primary school, they trade rubber bands, they trade lollipops, they create currencies of value within this small isolated society. When the uh, Livestrong uh, rubber bands came out and people started promoting various charities with these rubber bands, they became tradable commodities in primary schools. And primary schools have been doing this for years. Tamagotchi, Pokemon cards, baseball cards. Uh, even before that, marbles, and in my father's time, chestnuts. So They could play knockers, which was a weird game that involved banging chestnuts against each other. <laughs> but here's the point. Currencies emerge when you have the social structure for currencies to emerge. And the reason that currencies are emerge... In that manner is because currencies are a form of communication. Currency is a language. It is a language that allows people to exchange information about value. Not always monetary value. It's about value of friendship. It's about value of popularity. It's about value of celebrity. It's about value of brand. And all of these things have value, not necessarily monetary value. And currencies are the language by which this value is expressed. So within the primary school environment, currencies emerge even when they didn't have the ability to create currencies. Uh, my friend Davi Barker and I were discussing this topic yesterday. and He uh, told me a bit about Emperor Norton, uh, who was this man in California who made a fortune... Selling pickaxes to gold miners and mining equipment because that's how you make the most money is not by mining but by selling the mining equipment. And
2: <laughs> yeah.
10: And then he did a bad deal which involved buying rice and uh, um, he lost all his money. And had a dream where he was visited by his mother and told that he had. Royal blood, and he was in fact an emperor, and should become the emperor of the Americas because America needed an emperor. So he used his last dollar to buy a civil uh, Civil War uniform, and a big hat, and a big ribbon, and went out in San Francisco and proclaimed himself to be the emperor. And he proclaimed the end of the Civil War, fired Lincoln, and fired Congress, and he kept proclaiming things, and people started paying attention, and they thought he was ridiculous. And he created his own currency, and people thought he was ridiculous. And then One of the big San Francisco newspapers published his things to see and to tell everyone how ridiculous they were. And because the newspaper published it, suddenly it wasn't so ridiculous anymore. And this currency started being accepted in stores in San Francisco, and people were able to trade the coins of Emperor Norton. And a currency emerged spontaneously, as it does because currency is a cultural artifact it's a system of language and the best affirmation of that currency was that people started counterfeiting emperor norton money <laughs> you know something has value when people start copying it so what did emperor norton lack he had the meme he had the popularity he had the idea he had the pizzas he had the fame he lacked the protection against counterfeiting. He lacked the portability. He lacked the transportability, and he lacked the global reach. The next emperor Norton, who might be five years old, will have all of those things, because now, combined with the cultural artifact of money, we have the mechanics, the technology of unforgeable, instant, secure, cheap. Fast asset transfer over an information network. And so if you combine these thoughts together, what we realize is that money happens when people have a need to express value, and that means money will happen at an accelerated pace. So that's why I say we will have millions of altcoins. We will have Konya West, and this time Kanye will do it. We will have Bill O'Reilly coin for ditto heads. We will have fame coins and TV show coins and primary school coins. We'll also have coins made by governments and coins made by banks and coins made to solve specific problems and coins that are memory hard and coins that have different script functions. We're going to have coins across the entire spectrum, and at that point we will have to start making some very difficult decisions. At that point, we've lost any way of knowing what has value. All of those coins will have value to their creators. The question is, how many of those coins will have monetary value for the rest of us? When I thought about that, I realized that we've already done this once before. Before the growth of the internet, opinion and the authority of opinion depended entirely on the authority of the issuer of opinion the gatekeepers of information if you are the new york times you own a printing press that is four football fields long and three stories high and you buy ink by the barrel the ownership of that printing press becomes a proxy for authority of opinion because Not many people can do that. That is scarcity. Scarcity becomes a metric by which we apply authority of opinion. So the New York Times, by sheer ownership of that printing press, had authority of opinion. And then suddenly, anyone could have a printing press. Anyone could have a desktop-based printing press. And just at the same time that an Egyptian blogger on the front lines of the Egyptian revolution suddenly had an opinion that was relevant that was timely and that was authoritative at the very same time New York Times was publishing bullshit by Judith Miller to drive us into a war and so our world was flipped upside down because the sources of authority were crumbling before our eyes and at the same time millions of other opinions were coming out which had no apparent no intrinsic source of authority and we had to recalibrate our world to understand authority of opinion as a matter of content, not source. Opinion was now not about who issued it, not about who distributed and not about how big their printing press was, but about how close to the information they were, how relevant that information was, and how many people were able to use that information to gain knowledge. In the new world of cryptocurrencies, governments and sovereigns no longer have authority... that is created by the ownership of the printing press of the Fed. Authority now is derived by the use of the currency. Us using Bitcoin is what gives it intrinsic value, if you want to use that old term. Of course, nothing has intrinsic value. Certainly, no money has intrinsic value. But if there is monetary value in a currency, it is derived from the use of that currency as a means of exchange, as a store of value, by the users, not by the sovereignty of the printing press that created it. So we now live in a new world where we will have millions of coins, and some of them will be Joey Coin and Maria Coin and Kanye West Coin, and some of them will be really important coins in the world financial environment. Here's the funny thing. We'll have no idea when one turns into the other. The line between a coin that's a fad and a coin that has monetary value is simply an adoption threshold. It's an issue of critical mass. At some point, the network effect, the viral adoption patterns of a currency, become big enough within a locality that that currency acquires monetary value. It acquires monetary value because increasingly the majority of the people you interact with speak the language of that currency by exchanging it for other things of value. We will have no idea how to distinguish between the two. Imagine a world where, a decade from now, a Central African Republic has de facto adopted through use of more than 50% of its GDP, as its national currency, Dogecoin. and Not a single person in that country has any idea what that silly dog is doing on their coin. <laughs> but guess what? Most of those African countries had no idea what that silly white old lady was doing on their money. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. There is absolutely no difference between the two. The impl- In terms of monetary value, the important thing for the user of that currency is, can I take this token of abstract value and get a dozen eggs with it? We have seen this happen before. and pesa started as a means for families to exchange cell phone minutes. One day, someone went to a store and said, ''I don't have any money, but I have two minutes left on my cell phone. If I give you a minute, can you give me three eggs?'' A currency was born. Eleven years later, M-Pesa represents 40% of the GDP of Kenya, and it was never designed to be a currency. Currencies are not created from sovereignty. Currencies emerge as a cultural artifact, as a means of conversation, as a language with which we express value to each other. I'll take it one step further. Now that we have cryptocurrencies, it is not sovereignty that creates currency. It is currency that will create sovereignty. By adopting Bitcoin on the internet, we are for the first time creating the internet sovereign currency. The purchasing power of Bitcoin at internet scale creates sovereignty for the internet. It creates an international transnational financial megapower. And we're building that right now. And we don't know if it's going to be Bitcoin or Dogecoin or any of the other coins, but it doesn't really matter. Because monetary value is not created at issuance anymore, it is created over time through adoption. So that is the story I wanted to tell you today about how value it derives coin, which derives sovereignty. Uh, that is all I had to say on the topic. I would love to take some questions. Thank you.
0: That was some powerful stuff. Really excited about Andreas Antonopoulos. Can't wait to interview him here on this program. Of course, he is one of the hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin. So if you're listening to this program, you're probably very familiar with his work. And I hope you appreciate it as much as I do. Something that stuck with me. This is the quote of the speech. He said, Now that we have cryptocurrencies, it's not sovereignty that creates currency. It's currency that creates sovereignty. Wow. That's some powerful stuff. Shattering paradigms and... You can see why here at Sovereign BTC we're so excited about Bitcoin because it really does have the potential to free the market and in turn free the world. Bitcoin, it's the place to be and as I always say, live free now and prosper. So before we let you go, we caught an interview with Paul Snow and Stephen Wilkinson. They are with the Texas Bitcoin Association and they are two of the gentlemen that worked their behinds off to bring the Texas Bitcoin Conference into full fruition. And man, they were tired when I gave this interview. They were hanging in there. It was towards the end of the Bitcoin-cert, the first ever of uh, concert that was powered entirely by Bitcoin ticket sales. I got to chat with them about their thoughts on the conference, a little wrap up interview. So I'm going to bring that to you. And I want to personally thank Paul Snow and Stephen Wilkinson for everything they do here in Austin and in Texas to further the Bitcoin ecosystem and to grow the movement. Here's that closing exit interview with Paul Snow and Stephen Wilkinson. Two of the main organizers for the Texas Bitcoin Conference. First annual, I hope. Yes, we got yes. the Bitcoin, the Bitcoins are going on behind us. People are enjoying themselves, starting to wind down. I personally enjoyed myself immensely. My family had a great time. I learned a lot. It seems like a lot of people soaked up a lot of knowledge and a lot of networking took place. So I just want to thank you guys for putting this together and get some final thoughts on how you guys think it win. Paul, do you think it turned out like a, a
11: good event? Oh, it was an amazing event. Everyone that I talked to felt like they had really gotten uh, a lot from the uh, conference. The hackathon was unbelievable. They they had four they they had set up for four winners, each of which would get two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of funding. To carry their work forward, there were five entries that were so good they had to pony up another $250,000 to keep the, uh, to, to, to just be fair. There were just that many good ideas coming awesome. out of the hackathon. So instead of a million, it's a million and a quarter. Right? All right. And really, really amazing result. Um, the sessions were good. The uh, community was good. The music is good. Yeah. If you weren't here, you really lost out. That's right.
0: Thankfully, there'll be another one uh, next year. There is
11: going to be another one next year. All Absolutely. Right. Stephen, what was the highlight for you? I, I like this, you know the crowds and just how everybody was interacting. It had smiles on their faces and everybody was happy about being here. And it's just you know I had nothing but good things said to me about what this venue was doing and what the hospitality of our staff. Everything about it is just wonderful. And also, you know, if somebody didn't missed out on this conference, we do have all sessions ready to go on our website at TexasBitcoinConference.com. Yes. Awesome. You can go there. For $50, you get access to everything that took place on both days. Hey, that's so you can get all that information and feel like you were there just without them networking. <laughs>
0: now, I know it's going to be hard for the listeners to, to comprehend how much work went into putting this together. But tell us, you know, you guys probably been slaving off for the past several months. What was it like to put this thing together? How much went into it?
11: Oh, well, you know, I really can't tell you. This is our first conference. We, we had to learn everything from the ground up. We, uh, mistakes, of course, were made, and huge amounts of effort were uh, poured in to make up for any kind of miscalculation. Um, the effort was uh, phenomenal, phenomenal. And I, I can't thank uh, Stephen enough. I can't thank Raphael enough for uh, our events and everything that those guys have done for us. I can't thank, uh, uh, thank Cointera enough. I can't thank MasterCoin enough. Really, I can sit here and thank for quite a while. <laughs> uh, but in the end of the day, my wife, Linda, I, I have to give her triple thanks. Without her organizational skills, uh, this, this would have been um, just even more even harder. Yeah. Uh, but all the effort uh, turned in a good result, and we've really enjoyed it. And I and I hope everybody that came enjoyed it.
0: Great. Uh, final question. Do you guys agree with me that Austin, Texas is the Bitcoin capital of the United States of America? Absolutely.
11: Absolutely. There's not a doubt. Yep.
0: Well, thanks, gentlemen. Look forward to next year. Thank you. Thank you. There you have it, folks. This has been a info-packed edition of Sovereign BTC, the Texas Bitcoin Conference edition titled The Future of Bitcoin. And if you ask me, the future of Bitcoin is looking very bright. From the growth of big-time merchants like Overstock.com, To the potential that Bitcoin 2.0 has to really disrupt things and empower the little guy. Remember guys, Bitcoin is the people's money. It's controlled by you, the person holding Bitcoin, the guy with the mining rig, the business accepting Bitcoin, the evangelist promoting the power of Bitcoin. Things are looking good and I am so privileged to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to this program and thank you for participating in the Bitcoin ecosystem. You can check us out at SovereignBTC.com, like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SovereignBTC, and follow us on Twitter at Twitter.com slash SovBTC. And as I end every program, I want to remind you to use Bitcoin, live free, and prosper.